You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast. This is Hannah Provo, content manager at the American Alpine Club. Today, I have the opportunity to talk to alpinist Graham Zimmerman and climate artist Jill Pelto about visualizing the vast and looming concept of climate change in compelling ways that resonate with climbers. Thank you guys so much for being here and talking to me today. Could you guys each introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are? Hey, thanks for having us today. It's really special to be here talking about this stuff. And my name's Graham Zimmerman. I'm a professional alpinist and I sit on the board of the American Alpine Club. Um, I also do a lot of work in climate advocacy and storytelling. Um, also that's kind of in filmmaking and podcasting and things like that. And I really, I'm, I'm constantly on the lookout for ways to kind of bring those things together to tell stories about climate so that we can be reaching broader audiences and just kind of bringing people into that tent so we can all be talking about climate together. Hi, thanks so much for having me. My name is Jill Pelto, and I'm a climate change artist with a background in earth and climate science. And so um, I've collaborated a little bit with American Alpine Club in the past, initially when they launched their first Climbers for Climate campaign. And I helped design um, a a shirt that they silk screened. And um, now a piece of mine, a painting called Progression, is available for uh, members who who donate to their uh, year-end pledge. Awesome. Thanks again for both of you for talking to me. Um, So I actually want to dig a little bit further into your background. So Graham, you're an alpinist, so your tie to the mountains is pretty clear. But Jill, could you tell us a little more about your background and what draws you to mountains in particular when you're talking about climate change? Yeah. So I had the unique opportunity to grow up with a dad who is a glaciologist and um, works in Um, glacial landscapes on mountains. And so that was something growing up in New England that was pretty rare um, to get to learn about. And so I started joining him working on mountain glaciers in the North Cascades in Washington when I was 16 and have been doing that ever since. And that led me down this path of exploring mountain landscapes on my own through my master's going to places like New Zealand and Antarctica to work. And so Now in my home base in Maine, I explore a lot of the local mountains in this area, and it's still, there's something that really inspire my work, both in science and art. Graham, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how your alpinism has kind of transformed you into a storyteller and advocate? Yeah, um, it's, this is actually kind of fun to riff off of what Jill was saying, um, because I actually have a a background in glacial hydrology. Um, and all of, I did all my studies down in New Zealand where it's not like, hell, you've spent some time. So that's, that's really cool. Um, it's cool that we have that connection. I love that. Um, and you know, for those of us who are invested in climbing in the mountains or spending time in the mountains or just invested in the mountain landscape in general, you know, those are, those are spaces are high altitude and high latitude parts of the world that, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing the most climate change take place. And so, it's been, you know, it's been something that due to glacial recession, due to uh, shorter winters and things like this, that, you know, it's been really obvious to this community for a long time. And it's something that we've really been communicating on to try to try to tell people like, hey, listen, we're seeing this in these areas. This will start showing up closer to home. 
And in the last five years or so, it's really felt to me kind of anecdotally, like it has showed up close to home. We've been talking for years about, oh, this is, you know, going to going to show up at our front door, but um, it's here, you know, like there, we kind of have our fifth season here in Bend, Oregon, where I live, um, you know, when it's smoke season, um, we're hanging out in Bend, Oregon, I'm hanging out in Bend, Oregon right now. And I think it's like 65 degrees outside and tomorrow, you know, is the first day of December. So it's, you know, it's something that we've been communicating about these high altitude, high latitude areas, and they continue to be a really good kind of source of inspiration and storytelling about how we drive climate policy. But it's it's here. I mean, it's showing up at our front door as well. Um, and so that's it's making this work feel that much more meaningful. And hopefully we can bring more people into the conversation because more people are being directly affected. Yeah, thanks for um, being really specific about that. I was actually hoping we could explore that more because um, the AAC is excited to be talking to you two specifically like in conversation because you're both like observing, representing and helping visualize climate change within mountain landscapes. And so I just want to start kind of really digging into that question is of what it's what what have you been seeing? Um, what are you noticing? What do you what is it important that we're communicating? I can I can jump in. Um, you know, I think that when we talk about kind of seeing uh, climate change at higher higher elevations and things like that, the, the thing that's really super um, front of mind for me right now is a trip that we had this last summer to try a new route on uh, Chogari or K2, which is like the second highest peak in the world. That's somebody, as somebody who is, you know, very invested in climbing and invested in, you know, climate, climate policy, uh, you know, I, I knew that the Karakoram was warming up. I knew that that was like something that was taking place. But when we actually went to try the the direct West Ridge, um, it, uh, it we were at 7,000 meters and it was like 14 degrees Celsius in the shade. It was just way too hot for us to be safely climbing. And fortunately, we were able to, you know, get out of there uh, safely and, and we're never actually like directly exposed to the avalanches and rockfall that were that were kind of coming down the route but um you know like the weather was clear we were strong the equipment was all in place um but the thing that shut us down was a really warm summer and uh and it was like it was kind of it really drove home for me the sense of like oh wow this is this is this is really this is really happening um and it's like and it's it's a story that i've been trying to utilize in order to to help drive change in our communities and, and kind of use as a lever of change. Um, and I think it's, I mean, and I think that people are listening, which is just good. Certainly people seem to be listening more than ever, which is cool. On my end, I also have seen so many examples of climate change in the mountains really becoming so much more clear. And I think the first year um, working in the North Cascades in Washington that it was so striking for me was was 2015. Um, I'd been working out there since 2009. And that year was the first time I was faced with um, that much smoke, that much um, or that, that much less of snow left on the, the glaciers and the mountains at the end of the summer and seeing like the reservoirs and things really low and just like all the effects to the ecosystem. I also saw a new little like pond form at the bottom of a glacier that year. It was just all of these things like all at once kind of like such an uh, emotional thing um, to witness, especially if it's a place that you love, but no matter what. And that trip and like seeing that was what first got me going on um, the 
data-based climate change art that I do now. And since then, like, for example, um, this summer was also dealing with some of the heat waves, not the most severe ones, but some of the bad heat waves in August in, in Washington. And the, the final spot of five that we go for our science field season is a little bit more in eastern Washington. And the fires there were starting to um, get a little worse, or at least like reach the area where we're working. And it it starts to become a decision where we're going to do the science, but like at what point do we decide to like to call it off? And I know that's the same for uh, for any type of expedition. It's like we we want to go and get the data and find out what's happening to these glaciers, but we're also working in these conditions that aren't you know I assume gr- good for your health at this point. And it you know um, starting to face a lot more more of that. Um, and, and with that being said, um, I do also try to look towards if these landscapes are going to be inevitably changing, um, that is hard for me to witness, but what is some of the you know beauty that will also kind of come from that? Um, what are the plants that are going to be here? Um, what is this kind of ecosystem shift you know going to to look like as a result? Um, and what kind of you know positive change will this will this also inspire for for these places? Yeah, Jill, I know that um, I think we're using tree line migration, which is the artwork uh, for this year end appeal, um, which thank you so much, by the way, it's beautiful. Um, But I think that also captures kind of what you were saying at the end just there about, um, you know, it's not just about a loss of what has been, but it's just going to change. There's going to be an adaption. And I know, Graham, I've heard you talking about the way the current conditions, you know, change our choices in the mountains. So I was wondering if both of you maybe could tell me a little bit more about that sense of change and not necessarily completely just loss. So in in witnessing change, I feel like um, as we've touched on, that rate of change is happening so differently in different, you know, parts of the world. And uh, for example, in like the Northeast, I feel like we're certainly seeing the effects um, Growing up, I had, you know, just kind of snow on on the ground all year round at my door. Um, and now I don't, you know, things like that with with temperature and precipitation changes. But I do think a lot of the changes, um, you know, are, are yeah, or are more drastic at, at higher latitudes and elevations. And um, I think what what I am witnessing in Washington, I guess I'm going to study the glaciers, but as I mentioned, it's kind of like a whole kind of ecological shift. And so while, like I said, that's hard, it's really fascinating to me as a scientist as well. You know, even the aspects I don't know about, like when the plant, when plants bloom after the snow melts or what, um, how different species of animals are doing like year to year with having a longer um, like summer season, things like that are really interesting to me to think about um, how all those dynamics are shifting and how do they, you know, catch up to that or, or not catch up to that. Um, and what are their kind of unexpected you know, things that we're going to kind of uniquely witness from, I guess, this quick, this quick of a, a rate of change. And, and what kind of um, things are we going to do to, um, you know, protect more of these areas because we're having to, and that's something that, um, that's something that I'm hopeful and, and think that we're going to be doing that, that is positive. So I had a, I had a really interesting conversation with another friend who's working in climate science the other day about, um, you know, like we know, we know that climate change is happening. So why are we still, 
why are we still studying it? Why, you know, it's like, that's, so it's proven out that like climate change is happening and we have to do something about it. Why aren't we putting all of our resources towards, um, you know, mitigation and adaptation efforts. And I think that Jill, this, this kind of parallels to what you're talking about really well in the sense that as we look at the changes that are taking place, um, you know, like according to the IPCC report, we have 30 years of change that are baked into the cake, you know, and that, and that starts like once we like fix the problem on our side, which we haven't achieved yet. So we have at least 30 years of change that's going to take place. And that means that understanding how we need to adapt is a really important component to how we get at climate change. And I think as we talk about that as as climbers, you know, it's something where, you know, we talk about what will be climbable, what won't, how things are changing, what beta from the past we have to throw out, that kind of thing. But I think as we look at what this means for, you know, our broader society, um, particularly folks who are underrepresented, folks who are, uh, you know, like in a tricky kind of socioeconomic uh, spot, you know, it means that they are being subject to those changes uh, in a way that is, you know, can be really, really uh, dangerous, can be, you know, to their health, can be really, uh, really impactful to the, like how they make money, where they live. And that's something like I think about that a lot with my friends who live up in the small villages in the Karakoram who, you know, these folks like don't have a carbon footprint, um, but they are being impacted by climate change super heavily. Um, and all of their efforts that are going into how they deal with climate have nothing to do with like controlling their carbon footprint. Um, they also don't have a lot of political power, so they're not worried about voting. They're like putting in like rock gabions to like protect their village from the, you know, from the potential flooding that's going to come from glacial recession and things like that. And as we, you know, as we look at the South Pacific, like, you know, the, these island nations are going away. And then as we look at, you know, like domestically, um, how different communities are affected by this, um, it turns turns the climate conversation into a social health problem. And so as we like look at the changes that are taking place and the changes that are baked into the cake, you know, understanding them is really important because that's going to allow us to get in front of, you know, some of these some of these issues that are not just affecting our ability to like climb or like whether I can do that route during that season or whatever. It's like, directly affecting people's ability to live healthy lives. It's like this, it really drives like how important all of this work is. Yeah. Um, thank you for bringing us to that really important point, Graham. Um, and actually maybe both, maybe that's part of your motivations and that sort of thing. I'm definitely interested in for both of you, the turning point and the catalyst that fully cemented your dedication to this type of work um, so what moment or turning point comes to mind when you think about like what motivates you to be doing this type of storytelling or making this type of art? I think that the turning point for what motivated me is, is tricky because a lot of what I do is definitely very steeped in, you know, how I was raised and the opportunities I got to have growing up and the things I got to learn. Um, and so the art side for me is very much in, ingrained, I think, just like almost in my DNA. I have a twin sister and she's the same way. We both always, always knew we wanted to be artists. Um, and the science side, I think, was very much introduced by, um, yeah, both both getting to do a lot of outdoors things growing up and then getting to learn about science from my parents and then, you know, getting to be in environments like on glaciers in high school, which is very unique. Um, and so I, I think that 
the kind of motivation for me is something that, you know, I have because I've always gotten those wonderful opportunities to um, explore our natural world. And that just started coming out a lot um, in my art. And I had mentioned um, a particularly strong experience with seeing climate change um, in Washington in 2015. So that was that was definitely, I would say, like a turning point. Um, but but certainly, um, the more I learn now about, as Graham mentioned, what what people all over the world um, from all backgrounds are experiencing, is what what continues to motivate me to communicate these issues, and also, um, you know, hearing from or um, presenting to or talking with the next generations and youth and 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 hearing their kind of concerns and, you know, hopes and fears for the future and, and wanting to, to be a, like some small part of um, to addressing that, like not just, you know, for me, but for them. Um, there's the, obviously the selfish part of just loving, loving the, the world, how it is, loving winters, things like that. But there's very much the, the other part of just believing in that um, and having hope in that kind of um, world as well. Jill, that's, that's really, that's really cool. Um, and I think that, you know, kind of part of what you described and something that I, that I think about a lot is, is kind of the levers that we have to operate to drive change in the world around us. And for, for me, I, this is, this is funny because we talked about how I worked, right? I studied glacial hydrology when I was younger, but I, then I, you know, I finished my university career and, and basically just like went climbing. Um, I was, you know, like 21 years old and young and fired up and I don't know, typical young psych climber. And, um, and that meant that, you know, I spent, I spent a long time, quite a few years just pursuing climbing and not really thinking about the impact that I was having on the world. And, and, uh, and I mean, those were really magical years. Actually, I was just, just, uh, sent some photos from one of my, one of my kind of original, uh, expedition climbing partners, Ian Nicholson of us in like 2008, when we were kids and we were like trying new routes in Alaska and stuff. And it was, I mean, you could just, the amount of uh, naivete, like that you can see kind of in our attitude towards all this was, is, is epic. And it's, it's fun to look back on, but at some point as we kind of like engage with the world more and more, you know, we start to see these problems and maybe it's like development of a prefrontal cortex. Maybe it's just exposure to, to issues over time. But for me, that kind of came down to trying to understand how the climbing I was doing could be used as a tool to kind of drive change in the world around me. And that was based on specific inspiration from a few folks in my community who were actively actively doing that. And as I, you know, kind of like figured that out for myself and asked friends about it, you know, how, how do I do this? It's, it's all about understanding those levers of change that you operate. And as we, you know, kind of look at, you know, what we have that we can get done as climbers, this goes back to those stories of those high altitude and high latitude parts of the world where we're seeing all this change. And the fact that our stories from the mountains are steeped in, you know, climate change, like climate change is always right there at the thick of it. And, uh, and so looking for ways to tell stories to our community, tell stories to our policymakers, tell stories to, you know, broader communities on a domestic or a global level, and utilize those in order to drive to drive change. And uh, and Jill, it sounds like you've been doing that with your art, which is super badass. Um, and I've been trying to do it with my athlete platform. And uh, 
And that's, you know, I think that as we look at kind of the world around us and what we want to change, uh, understanding our personal levers is a really important part of it because we all have levers to drive change. Um, it's just kind of a matter of like unearthing them, like figuring out where they are, figuring out how to operate them, and then just kind of like flexing that muscle over and over again until we get good at it. That's really cool. I was, I'm hoping now that we can maybe get into even more specifically the maybe different tactics for communication that you both use. Um, because so the national conversation about climate change has included lengthy analysis of the idea that people are struggling to mobilize around climate simply because it's just so vast of an idea that it's hard to get your head around and conceptualize. So you two are separately doing work to help make that visualization and understanding happen in two different mediums. And so I'm interested in like what drew you to the particular methods you are using to accomplish that. Um, maybe the specific elements of the stories that you're focusing on, um, the type of like why science and art together, maybe elaborating on that. Um, because I think they are be they're both really effective in different ways. And I'm interested in kind of how you got there to use those methods. So my current method for communicating climate change is primarily through watercolor paintings that include different types of graphs, usually line graphs. And so my goal with those is to just to show people the information directly in the painting. It's just showing a change over time, whether that's you know good or bad, just here's what sea level has looked like over time in a graph. Um, but then the art is providing the visuals that, you know, for some people they're going to speak to that, that beauty and they're going to connect maybe more, um, emotionally than to that kind of plain graph by itself. And, and so that, that's my hope and what I'm doing with my work. And I have experimented with a lot of different ways of doing that. And when I started, a lot of it was just kind of, you know, taking a data set, uh, and being pretty um, straightforward and communicating that, like I would show glaciers declining, I showed, you know, forest fire activity, um, changing habitats, it could be any any topic. Um, and I think over time, I've started to kind of think about what what uh, connects with people the best, or what are different stories to tell. So, um, for example, like telling, you know, maybe a story that's that's local in my art versus like a more global picture, kind of having a mix of those. And I certainly wasn't really thinking as much about what kind of emotion mattered as much at the beginning. Um, you know, so I think a lot of my topics people may have said were negative, even though they were just showing something that was happening. And so I'm trying to be a lot more conscious um, going forward and have been in kind of incorporating a range of ideas and um, emotions into my work. And so having, having things that people can see that are, are positive. So, you know, sea level rise might be happening, but, you know, here are, you know, ways that we're like responding to it, or like, this is how much renewable energy we're using now, you know, in this state versus like, you know, fossil fuel consumption. So just having those different like pieces of information for people to see. And um, I think it's been a good in between or like go between for people I think a lot of folks don't, you know, aren't going to see these graphs or see this data ever. It's not going to, you know, necessarily get out to them um, in a in a very accessible way. And so, that's my hope is like they can they can see this data, they can learn about it if they want to, um, 
with my art. And um, as I mentioned, I'm doing a little bit of, or, or quite a bit of outreach with, um, with kids. And so I'll kind of bring this into different schools and have them get to choose their own data or pick from, from data sets and let them tell us about what are the topics that they're concerned about or interested in, whether that's something, you know, local or around the world, whatever it is. Um, and, and you kind of use that as a means of, of communication. So it's kind of all about, um, you know, taking data and something I was very used to having to look at and create when I was a student and kind of breaking it down to like the really important background to that data that sometimes it's hard to see when you just look at that by itself. And lastly, I guess like that, all of that, like my, my biggest hope is just that this is sparking, you know, interest and conversations in people. It's just like that kind of first step thing of helping people learn, helping people be engaged and helping people think about, you know, climate change in their, their everyday lives. That's really cool. So Jill used a, used a word in there, uh, accessibility, which, um, is something I've been thinking about a lot personally. And, um, in terms of how I communicate on climate and why I communicate on climate and hearing you talk about how you're utilizing your art in order to make the climate conversation more accessible is very, very cool. Um, because sometimes charts and, you know, things like that, you know, that are coming out of scientific art articles are not something that people feel are accessible to them. You know, whether or not they understand them, it's like, they might not, you know, might not feel like that's their language. Um, and so as we look at how we communicate on these stuff, being able to kind of translate it so that it becomes accessible for different communities is really, is, is a really exciting um, part of this conversation. And I think is, is also like one of the most challenging things to do. So, you know, it's like, it was just Thanksgiving. And uh, if you're sitting down with your honorary uncle who, um, you know, is a climate change denier or doesn't, you know, doesn't feel like it's what they should be voting on, understanding that like, they actually may recognize that there's change taking place in the world around them, but there are certain words that are toxic or there are certain kind of phrases that are things that will turn them off due to like the political implications. So if you can learn how to communicate on the stuff, without saying, you know, aggressively talking about greenhouse emissions and carbon footprints and instead talk about common values and, you know, common ground, and then utilize that to kind of understand what they value and how this affects what they value. Um, it can be a really cool way to like have those conversations and bring people into the conversation. And for me, and I think, I think this is true for a lot of, a lot of climbers, um, you know, one of the, one of the hardest things to get into the climate conversation was this kind of concept of imperfect advocacy. Um, the idea that, um, you know, the, the, what we've been told, the kind of narrative that we have on board a lot of times around climate or traditional, traditionally around climate has been, you know, that we solve this by driving less, by flying less, by not eating meat, by, you know, not going places by like, you know, going down this pathway that kind of leads us to the logical conclusion of like being in your home without the heat on and living off of carrots from the backyard. And, and for those of us invested in going on adventures in the big parts of the world. And for me in particular, where like, those are the places where I discovered my connection with global cultures and global climate and all that stuff. It's like, those things are totally antithetical. You know, it's, you know, I have to, in order to solve climate, I have to give up what I love. And, and that's really hard. And that makes it so that a lot of climbers feel like this is like climate 
change policy or climate change actions are totally inaccessible to them because they're not willing to give up climbing. And I think that uh, something I've been working on a lot is that is that narrative that we utilize to to share why action is important and how we can take action. And I think that um, as we look at you know personal change versus systemic change, we have this kind of dichotomy of like how we how we get at this thing. And I think that as we look at that dichotomy, I, something that comes up for me a lot is I calculated the carbon footprint of my expedition to Pakistan last year. It was like 14 uh, tons of carbon, which is, which is a lot um, for a three month expedition. Um, but if you look at like the top 10 coal uh, power plants in the United States, uh, their annual output is like 64 million uh, tons of carbon. And so if we're going to look at those two numbers, like 14 compared to 64 million, um, you know, one is not even a rounding error in the other. And so as we're going to look at which of those we need to address, um, I think it's pretty clearly the much larger number. And that also leads us to a different potential, a different potential narrative that we can utilize when we talk about climate, which is to say that, you know, instead of like, stop doing everything you love, let's reposition that to say, the world I want to live in is one where I can plug my electronic vehicle into my home and my home is running on a green energy grid. And I take that car and I drive out to the crag and I drive home and I plug it back in and that trip to the crag becomes something that is carbon neutral or really carbon efficient. The same goes if we build out that EV infrastructure and then I can go further with that electronic electronic vehicle. I can go to the Sierra or I can go to the Canadian Rockies. Um, and then as we look at decarbonizing air travel, you know, that means that I can go on that expedition to the Karakoram and have those amazing cultural interactions there's so much of the reason why I want to drive change in the world around me. And I can have those experiences and I can be working on climate policy and I can be encouraging people to do both at the same time. And as we look at like how we drive systemic change, it's all about going back to that idea of accessibility, bringing, you know, utilizing our words, utilizing our language and our communications to bring more folks into that tent so that they feel included and then collectively talking to our policymakers. Um, because Jill, you were talking before about how like there are all these positive things as well. Like we have all the technology we need. Like this isn't a technology issue anymore. This isn't like something that we can't do. This is not an unsolvable problem. We just don't have the political will to kind of get that, get that underway. Um, and if we can drive that political will and we can move away from fossil fuel subsidies, if we can push towards more EV infrastructure, we can push airlines to decarbonize air travel and things like that, which we can do like through, you know, through government, um, then we can, we can get this done and we can live in that world that we want to live in where we get to do the things we love that inspire us to like save the, you know, wild places of the world and still go visit those places and go climbing. And that's, I mean, that's what I want. And I don't, I don't think it's totally unreasonable. So that's kind of like, that's sort of what I've been working on recently. Yeah, and that vision so resonates with me. I <laughs> I very much identify with being inspired through my climbing um, and wanting to protect both climbing and the planet. Um, and, and I actually, throughout our conversation, we've kind of moved from kind of the way that both of you are speaking to individuals through you know, maybe like a talk you give or your, you know, your athlete platform or a given piece of art. And now we're talking kind of bigger picture about 
what's the vision down the line of like the larger structures that are changing. And I guess I want us to start thinking about kind of that in greater depth. The AAC policy team is focused on supporting and advocating for the 30 by 30 initiative, which aims to conserve 30% of the world's lands and waters by 2030 in order to foster carbon sequestration and protect biodiversity, among a slew of other things. And so I'm interested in, from your own expertise, each of you, can you speak to how conserving landscapes, mountain landscapes, climbing landscapes fits into the larger national conversation about climate change, mitigation, and adaption in general? Okay, so uh, you, I guess you were talking about like the AAC policy team, and it's worth noting that I sit on the policy committee with the board. So, I, like, I think that I probably have, uh, I, I guess I have quite a bit of insight into like why thirty by thirty was chosen. And I think as we as we understand our levers of change, um, we need to, you know, we need to utilize them, and not like necessarily try to create new ones out of thin air. And as we look at what the American Alpine Club represents, we represent a relationship with space. We represent a community that has a relationship with space, with the mountains, with the crags, with the boulders. And so the like the 30 by 30 uh, program is a really cool way for us to look at protecting that space. And as we look at how that connects to climate, those can seem seem like kind of separate things like the, you know, the, the kind of public lands discussion uh, can seem like something separate from climate. But these things are super heavily intersected. And I think that uh, the easiest kind of um, statistic to share around that is that it's, I think it's 26% of our carbon emissions in the United States actually come off of our public lands. And so as we look at our public lands and what we're doing with them, like not only do we want to be expanding them and, you know, like creating more public land, but we also want to be really making sure to be good stewards of those, of those landscapes. And so as you know, that means protecting those lands and that means uh, understanding, you know, what kind of leasing is going on on those lands so that we can you know, control the carbon footprint that's coming off of them. And that's something that as like a cit the citizenry of the United States is like, that's our responsibility. That's, you know, that's that's our land that we're supposed to be able to kind of like control what goes on. And the only way to do that is to, you know, let our representatives know you know, what, what we want to see take place on those lands. And, uh, and so as we look at 30 by 30 and we look at protecting 30% of the globe's landscape or landscapes, um, you know, that's, that's kind of why that is very much part of the climate conversation. From what I've seen, I'm really impressed with how clear and kind of multi-pronged American Alpine Club's approach is to what they're asking or sharing with, with their members and beyond. And so I feel like for a lot of people, of course, like the first step with, with climate is like, you know, that kind of education and information piece, but kind of from there, I think a lot of people don't always know where to go. And so just providing places, like providing tools for that, it seems like it's what something big that American Alpine Club is doing. And, you know, of course, a really big thing as well is, um, is voting for, you know, candidates who support environmental protection and, and climate change mitigation. But I think beyond that, people want to find other opportunities, you know, to get involved in, in community action and advocacy. And so just having those like resources in, in um, a collective way, I think is really awesome. For the 30 by 30, I, I think that is so 
you know, vitally important and necessary for us to do. I can't, I can't speak as well to the 30% itself, but I think it's something that we definitely can do and, and need to do. And um, I like that it is uh, a globally comprehensive plan. It's definitely time to, as Carmen's been speaking, to focus on the solutions. Like we know, we know enough, we know what we need to do. And we know that, you know, we just now need to mitigate climate change and to take these actions now and kind of give people that vision of, of that better world, give them a vision of what they can actually, you know, do to be in, involved. And it seems like 30 by 30 is a really good, clear vision of, of what that can be and like a really huge accomplishment and jumping off point for um, just kind of changing our relationship globally with, you know, our, the land and water. And I think we just shifting, you know, entirely. And that, that sounds like a big, a big thing, but I think it's entirely doable for, for wealthy countries like ours to, to start. Yeah, thanks, Jill. And I, I think you're starting to speak to kind of a vision and a speak, uh, looking forward that I kind of want to leave us on um, that note of thinking about, you know, sometimes I have days where I doubt that it's even helpful or even working to be focusing on this. What what do you guys do when if you have those doubt days, doubtful days? Um, what keeps you going? I can I can jump in on that. I mean, advocating for climate change is really hard. Um, and one of the biggest challenges, I think, particularly for us as climbers, is that I mean, you you get a lot of trolling around it. Uh, some of that comes on the internet. Some of that comes from you know family or friends. Um, a lot of it comes from within our climbing community. And a lot of it comes from, you know, kind of like, at least, you know, like those of us who are kind of like liberal, liberal uh, folk, um, you know, it comes from like our, our fellow liberals, kind of our, our, our co-patriots in that space. And, um, and that's really challenging. So I think that, you know, the things that I really think about a lot are the actions that I can take personally, particularly like voting, calling my reps and things like that. And then, and then how do we build community around this? How do we... Like instead of creating a space in which we're picking each other apart for our like, you know, whether or not you drove or rode your bike to the crag, um, instead, let's be supportive of each other um, and let's show up for each other on social media in terms of like when we're speaking at our city council meetings or in D.C. or whatever, um, you know, find ways to like not only drive your own actions, but also support the actions of others, um, because this is this is a collaborative effort. As we look at what the American Alpine Club represents, it represents community and that and the community is something that can work together to drive change, to make the world a better place. And that's really what this is all about. So, yeah. So if you're feeling exhausted, um, you know, first off, look after yourself because this is a, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Like we're not going to solve climate next year. We're not going to solve it during the midterms. We are literally going to be working on this for the rest of our lives. And so we got to like look after ourselves and we got to look after our friends. So we're all in this together. I like that a lot. I think it's a, yeah, it's a hard question for kind of what do you, how do you keep going sometimes in the, in the face of, of what's happening with climate change. And, you know, of course there, there are those moments, you know, of that experience, you know, climate anxiety and climate grief and things like that, where, you know, especially when you, you know, it's something, when it's something personal, um, where you have to experience in your own life and you have to think about like this, you know, something that I'm, I'm used to, something that I love is, is no longer 
and it just can't be that way, you know, during my life. And that's a very hard thought. Um, and, and I think that there are so many ways that I try to kind of not stay in those spaces. Um, and I think definitely getting to build a career around communicating this, while I wish it wasn't, you know, something that was necessary. I def I feel kind of fortunate because it helps me to be able to, you know, use my, use my art or use my voice or whatever I can. I think another thing that, that helps me is seeing younger, you know, generations kind of care and understanding. And I think it's so important to continue to foster this, but when I go into classrooms, I see such a widespread, um, you know, understanding and, and so that, that can be really inspiring for me. Um, to just hear their pers the perspectives and know what percentage of them are kind of on board and, you know, uh, with us. And hopefully that's something that will be, you know, preserved um, going forward. And I think lastly, just for me personally, um, in those moments, just like getting, getting outside, you know, even just, you know, usually just locally is like the biggest thing that I do always for mental health. And so, especially, you know, in those, in those moments, like where you're worried about the environment, like being present in the environment, if you have the opportunity to, you know, I'll, I'll you can't help but take it for granted sometimes, but I try not to. We're talking about how hard climate policy is, but like, we're talking, we're talking about climbers here. Like climbers are really good at doing hard shit. That's like, what we like, it's like what we do. Um, so we're like the perfect people to be in this fight. Just get in there and get involved. Well, thank you both so much. I honestly am so excited to have talked to you. You're both so fascinating, your perspectives coming from, you know, um, the athlete side of climbing and coming from the artist world and bringing those two together and like really illuminating a lot about climate change, which so many climbers care about and more and more are taking action on. Just thank you so much for kind of elaborating on those intersections um, I think this is going to be really valuable for people to be thinking about communication comes in a bunch of different forms, especially communication about climate change. And you guys are doing really unique, interesting work. And I think really moving the needle, which is so awesome. So thank you so much for coming and talking to me. Thank you. I love being a part of this conversation. It's inspiring for me too to hear uh, what different communities, you know, in or outside of my own are doing and what different perspectives are. I think there's it's really helpful for me to hear um, what uh, what you had to say and what what you thought, Graham. And I really enjoyed this experience. Yeah, me too. This has been really special. And uh, and Jill, it's really cool to talk to you about your art. I mean, it is. I spend a lot of time with other athletes who are like trying to communicate on climate and looking for other ways to communicate on this stuff is really exciting. And your art is super powerful. Um, so thank you for doing that work. Oh,